there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. Well, hey there, it's Liz Rohr from Real World NP, and you're watching NP Practice Made Simple, the weekly videos to help save you time, frustration, and help you learn faster so you can take the best care of your patients. So in this week's video, I'm gonna be talking about syphilis, and I'm gonna actually be talking about a very specific scenario that I see all the time in primary care. So we look, we learn about syphilis in school, right? And we learn about you know primary, the secondary, tertiary, all that stuff. Um, most of the time, um, when I am encountering syphilis, and, and specifically I'm talking about like lab interpretation in this video. So like when I specifically, like the main scenario that I'm seeing is something to do with the labs being abnormal, but they never had symptoms in the first place. So I'm really gonna focus on that, touching a little bit on when patients are symptomatic and you're you're proactively concerned about them being having syphilis versus when you're screening them uh, for whatever reason. So uh, I wanna talk about the labs, right? So when it comes to diagnosing syphilis and you're doing a screening test and they, whether or not they have symptoms, I guess either way, but uh, if they have no symptoms, sometimes you can get a, a positive test back, right? And then you're kind of left with like, oh gosh, I didn't expect that, what do I do with it, right? So there's two main categories of tests. There are the uh, non-treponemal and the treponemal. Uh, so non-treponemal are the screening tests that we usually start with um, that are less complicated, more cost-effective. We start there, and if those are positive, then it will kind of like reflexively go to the treponemal tests. So the non-treponemal tests are typically RPR. I can't remember it off the top of my head. My notes are a little convoluted, but RPR and VDRL are the two main ones. Sorry about that. And then um, if when that is reported back, it's actually a dilution. So without getting into the too much of the details, it's basically like a ratio of like how much they had to dilute it to how much was detected, right? So the ratio is one to two, one to four, 32, 64, 120, like, it keeps going up and up, 1,000, 2,000, right? And the higher the second number, the more likely it is to be an acute infection versus a false positive versus a latent infection, right? So the RPR is usually the one that our lab does. I'm more familiar with that. So the RPR, for example, is positive. Is it will be either non-reactive or it will be reactive and then it has a tighter associated with an antibody titer in that one to whatever ratio. And so when that becomes positive, the workflow is typically that the laboratory you're ordering from will add on the treponemal test automatically and the Department of Public Health will likely be notified. That's how at least it works in the state I live, which is Massachusetts. Um, I would check with your supervisor on that, but that's the general like workflow of what happens. And so you automatically get a test added on or they call you and they ask you to add it on, that kind of thing. So the, the treponemal test, the more specific, a little bit more complicated tests, there's a whole bunch of them and I have my notes here so I don't forget. Um, FTA, ABS, FTA antibody, that is like the main one that I see. Fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption. Um, there's a whole bunch of other ones I'm not as familiar with. MHA, TP, 
TPPA, I have seen that one. TPEIA, so those are um, treponemal palladium particle agglutination assay, and T palladium enzyme immunoassay. And I guess what I've read is that the TPEIA is recommended, but most of the time, like I said, I see the FTA antibody, but basically it's like a confirmatory test. Any of those will come back as, as um, like reactive or not reactive or positive or negative. And once those are positive, they will be positive for life. So that doesn't necessarily tell you if it's an active infection right now. It just suggests very sensitively and specifically that it is likely an infection at some point. Right, and so where you go from there depends on a couple of different things. So one, if you have a positive RPR and a positive FTA ABS or whatever it is, the trepidimal test of your choice or of your lab's choice, if those are both like positive, there are some rare cases of them being both false positive, but that's pretty uncommon. The more likely scenario is that the RPR is going to be false positive and then the FTA ABS or the whatever the trepidimal test is going to be um, negative, which is suggestive of a false positive. And the reasons behind that are a little bit obscure to me, but they're not very common. They can be like a reactive thing. I've seen it in some people with um, like autoimmune conditions, stuff like that. But um, when it comes to the actual interpretation, if you have both the positive RPR that has a titer and then you have the positive antibody of some kind or the treponemal test of some kind, you can take it from there. And so the places that you take it from there are, do they have, did they have symptoms at the time of presentation, right? And I'm not only briefly touch on that because it's a little bit more involved. Um, and I think we got a little bit more of that in school, honestly, versus like this kind of like other scenario, which is like, you kind of just have to figure out. <laughs> but yeah, so um, for the symptomatic patients, um, it's important to investigate, like, what are we dealing with here, right? Like, is a secondary, tertiary? What were the initial presenting symptoms? Do they need to see infectious disease? Like, I would, I would tag in somebody if I found that to be the case. Um, and then the second kind of scenario is, like, did they, um, you know, if they have no symptoms, then kind of, like, where are we from there, right? And then that's kind of getting into the history, right? Because it doesn't necessarily mean that they have an infection now, but they have at some point. And I say that for a couple of reasons, just stick with me for a second. But the main thing you want to ask is if they have no symptoms, did they, do you have any records or do they have any history of treatment? Because what can happen is that they expected actions after that happens. For example, say if somebody has a one to four titer on their RPR and they have a positive FTA antibody and they have no idea if they've ever been treated before. And basically you're getting into what type of syphilis are we talking about? You have to presume that if they don't know if that it's been treated, that you have to presume that it's never been treated. And then if you can try to compare to their previous labs, is this from the last 12 months or is it just unknown completely? And I have to say the most common scenario is unknown completely. No records, no idea about treatment, that whole thing. So yeah, so doing your best to elicit if it's in the last 12 months or not, because that kind of helps to differentiate what type of syphilis we're talking about, if it's latent syphilis or if it's late latent syphilis. And late latent syphilis is like, you have no idea, it's greater than 12 months since they possibly got that infection. And they have no symptoms, right? That's the key here. If they have any symptoms, I'm definitely consulting with either ID or my supervisor and like doing more digging and research, right? It just doesn't come up that often. Um, but for those people who are asymptomatic, well, someone with an RPR of one to four, positive antibody, no history on record, no idea if they've ever been treated, no idea if it happened in the last 12 months, we're assuming that it's a late latent syphilis and then we're going to treat them as such. And so the main treatment is um, uh, bicillin, pen, uh, penicillin G, I'm not gonna say it right. <laughs> bicillin is a brand name, I'm not affiliated with them. Uh, 2.4 million units IM, 
once a week for three weeks. Um, and we just have to presume, I mean, there are alternatives if there's a penicillin allergy, of course, um, but that's like the main treatment. And then what your follow-up monitoring is, and I have my notes here, that's why I'm looking over there. Um, the main thing for follow-up is you're checking their labs again, the RPR, again, the FTA antibody or whatever treponemal test you've already done, it's gonna stay positive, but the RPR, theoretically will uh, decrease fourfold, like four times below, to show that it's that it's getting better, right? That's a sign of treatment success. Versus a treatment failure is the next time you check it, there's a fourfold increase, right? Four times increase of what your initial lab was, right? So if it's a one to four, hopefully it will go down either to one to one or it will say non-reactive because that's a possibility too. There's two possibilities. So the check, Hold on a sec for that though. But six months, 12 months, and 24 months is the monitoring parameters after the, the tr initial treatment of wherever you've dropped in. Um, and then you're checking to see if it's a fourfold decrease, a fourfold increase, or no change. Two caveats I wanna add in here. One, there's something called serofast. So some patients, especially with those low level RPRs reactive, those patients may not ever get, like it might not go back down to normal. It might stay at one to one, it might stay at one to four, right? As long as it hasn't increased over time and they don't have symptoms, then you can continue to check those labs versus if they have any symptoms or you have concern of there being like neurologic things, especially like neurosyphilis, those patients need to be referred to infectious disease to have a conversation about do we need a CSF sampling? Do we need a lumbar spine, uh, a lumbar puncture rather? to obtain CSF for evaluation, right? And I'm not gonna make that decision as primary care. But if they have no symptoms, we're just rechecking the RPR titers at six months, 12 months, and 24 months, and hopefully a fourfold decrease. One caveat I did wanna add about symptomatic patients, and again, I didn't talk a ton about symptomatic patients in this video because there's a lot more to pack in there. But for those patients, there's something called a hook effect, real fancy, and it's not unique to syphilis RPR testing. However, it can happen with other labs too, but basically it's just so high that like it almost like oversaturates the machine or they don't get to the point of dilution enough to show a result and so it can come back as a false negative. So if somebody is presenting to you and they're like, oh my gosh, this is classic textbook syphilis. I'm so worried about it. You order an RPR and it's like, oh, non-reactive. It could be that hook effect of like, it's almost like too high for them to even measure it. You don't necessarily have to remember that name, but the, the action step you would take in that case is obviously consulting with somebody. I do recommend that active syphilis consulting. And then the other one is to call the lab and ask them about um, you know, is there a way to uh, address that, right? Yeah, I mean, you can remember that it's called a hook effect, but you can just say like, I'm worried it's not measured because it was too high. Is there a way that you can run that? I'm sure they'll know what you're talking about um, because they work in the lab or hopefully they will. Every supervisor will, somebody will. Um, but hopefully that's helpful. That's the most common scenario that I see. Um, I guess one kind of like other pearl to think about and it comes to like the neurosyphilis thing. So one other time, um, one specific time I'm thinking about, I had an older woman in her seventies had some cognitive impairment and one of the lab part of the workup for that is syphilis, um, doing an RPR, HIV, some other some other labs. And um, her RPR came back reactive and a low level reactive, I think it was like a one to four or one to eight, um, and she had cognitive impairment. And so what I ended up doing was um, having a consultation with 
by cold calling, uh, an infectious disease physician that actually I had developed a relationship with related to our HIV treatment program that I was a part of. Um, but I also just did some cold calling and I have a whole video about that. If you are nervous about that prospect, you can totally do it. It's amazing. But anyway, having a conversation with him of like, is this an appropriate referral? Do you rec recommend this person get a um, CSF sampling to test for neurosyphilis? Um, and what he ended up recommending is have her having an appointment to discuss. And I think that ultimately um, they determined that it was wasn't um, necessary, that, that she and the family just decided that it wasn't because it wouldn't necessarily affect her um, quality of life going forward. And because she had very likely a late latent syphilis that we treated and there's not, um, there's not a, yeah, it was like a, it was a, it was a risk benefit discussion that they ultimately decided not to do that. Um, but anyway, just as a, as, as a general, like, Pearl of practice is to get other people involved when it comes to syphilis, but this main approach will be helpful for the vast majority of the RPR positives that you're seeing. And if you struggle with labs, we'd love to have you in the lab interpretation crash course for new nurse practitioners. It's open all the time now, 8.7 hours of continuing education, and it covers CBC, CMP, TSH, lipids, urinalysis, and the main endocrine labs in primary care. So head on over to realworldmp.com slash labs if you're on the struggle bus with labs because it's bomb and it will help you feel so much better. Uh, they're just glowing reviews. But anyway, if you have questions about that, definitely let me or the team know. But thank you so much for watching. Let us know what questions you have. Hang in there and I'll talk to you soon. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.